What an absolute joy it is to be here with you and to just continue in our series as we are walking through the Beatitudes. Let me just say thank you, thank you, thank you to uh, Pastor Vance and um, and the leadership here. Um, It is just an absolute honor and delight to come and be a part uh, of the team here. Although I I, got to tell you this, I'm a huge Georgia Bulldogs fan. And um, some of y'all are chuckling. There's one redeemed person uh, (laughs) since an extra anointing back there. Uh, But they're, uh, you know, Pastor Vance is an Alabama person. And um, he invited me over to his house on Saturday because there's a little game, Georgia and Alabama. And for the sake of our friendship, I had to tell him no. I'm going to watch that one by myself because I hear he can get a little unruly. And, uh, but anyways, uh, what a joy. And then his bride, tomorrow she celebrates a birthday. So let me be the first to say happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. And then also want to say my brother uh, is here. Wave at the people, Brendan. And uh, he's out here in Vegas and uh, along with his wife and my three nieces. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, here is Jesus. He's just in the middle of this teaching on the Sermon uh, on the Mount, and he is walking through a section we've been walking through for the last several weeks. We know it as the Beatitudes, but Jesus simply says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Will you look at it with me? Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's a book that came out many years ago. It won all kinds of awards. It's a book written by a Jewish man by the name of Simon Weisenthal. It's a book called The Sunflower. If you hadn't read it, I want to encourage you, but before you do that, let me completely give it away, okay? It's a true story. Simon Weisenthal was a part of that ugly, ugly chapter in global history known as the Holocaust. He's a Jew working in a Nazi concentration camp, and as he tells the story, one day he's working out, I believe, in a, in a garden, and he's just kind of cultivating and just doing his work. It's just another day when all of a sudden uh, the building next to him, it's an infirmary, the doors to the infirmary burst open. It's a nurse. She's frantically looking for someone. Her, her eyes lock in on Simon Weisenthal, and, and she just beckons him to follow her, and so he puts his tools down, and and they ascend the stairs. She grabs him by the hand and marches him over to the bed of of a Nazi soldier who's at death's door. You can tell he's in anguish, and not just physical anguish. There's a heaviness to his spirit. And the the Nazi soldier musters all of his strength on his deathbed, And he beckons Simon to come closer, and he begins to tell him this this harrowing tale. He says, a few months before, here he is with some of his 
colleagues and they had rounded up a group of Jews and they put them in this abandoned apartment building and doused it with, with gasoline, lit a match, set it on fire, and they stood outside while they listened to these Jews just, just scream and scream and scream. And some of them just broke through the windows. And when that happened, they, they pulled out their machine guns and just mowed them down. This Nazi soldier says to Simon Weisenthal, true story, I know I am about to die, and I'm going to meet my maker, but before I do, I need you to show me mercy. And that's how it ends. That's the first third of the book. The rest of the book are are thought leaders, are faith leaders from every walk of life all over the world chiming in on what they think Simon should do. Because Simon never tells us what he does. And some say, yeah, he should show mercy. And others are like, it's not his place. And others are like, absolutely not. And what you leave the sunflower with is just this thought that when it comes to mercy, easier said than done. Mercy is one of these subjects, it's, it's cute to talk about up here. But now as my grandmama says, when, you, when we put shoe leather on this thing, easier said than done. So just, let me just tell you right now, uh, in the spirit of my grandmama, I, I'm a medal tonight. Because I want to walk this out. A couple of decades after Simon Weisenthal, there was an academic, his name, uh, African-American academic uh, who rocked the theological world. His name was James Cone. James Cone died a couple years ago. He was a leading voice to a heresy called black liberation theology. He rocked the world with a book released in the late 60s, early 70s called God of the Oppressed. And in this book, what James Cone fundamentally says is that God is only for the oppressed. He's not for the oppressor. In other words, what James Cone was arguing is, is that mercy is just for the marginalized. It is just for those who've been wronged. And I got to call that a heresy because when I put the lens of the gospel over James Cones' words, there is an uncomfortable truth that I, as a Christian, am forced to deal with. And I'll even say it this way, as a black Christian, what I don't like to admit, but what is absolutely true is that mercy is not just for the lynched, it's also for the lynch mob. Mercy is not just for the victim. For the ones who victimized. Mercy is not just for the oppressed. It's for the oppressor. God does not love you more than he does the person that wronged you. So what Brian likes to do, I... I like to wallow and have these pity parties and attach a moral value that puts me on the varsity side of the kingdom and puts the one who wronged me on the JV side of the kingdom where at the foot of the cross the playing field is level. 
So what I'm worried is in this cancel culture in which we live, that we've lost sight of mercy. So I know I'm preaching to the choir. All of us this weekend, we've been wronged. If I were to just pass the microphone around, we all know what it's like to be to have been wronged, we've been gossiped about. Some of us have been slandered. Like, like what you said about me is nowhere near true. Some of you are, 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 are here and you're, you're a business person and maybe you, you entered into a deal with your friend or someone you thought you could trust and, 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 and you were like, you know, we don't even need to sign papers. We've been doing life only to have them stab you in the back. Others of you are here and you've, you've walked through a horrible divorce Maybe you filed for bankruptcy, and, and, and let's just keep it real. You, you, you weren't the perfect spouse, but you gave this thing your best shot only to be betrayed, and it felt as if someone punched you in your soul. Others of you, dad wasn't there. He's left you without a GPS to navigate life. And in the middle of all that, not to trivialize the hurt, in the middle of all that, Jesus says to us, blessed are the merciful. What does this mean? When someone wrongs us, in our flesh, there's kind of one of two extremes we tend to go. One extreme is, is vengeance, right? You, you get me, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm getting you back. I just, that's just how we roll. Some of us, we got this mafia ethic. I hope this is a safe place for me, but I love mafia movies. As a black man, I shouldn't love mafia movies because every time you see a black person in a mafia movie, you know that person has about two minutes of screen time before they get killed. Right? When you saw Samuel Jackson in Goodfellas, you knew that brother was not going to be around for a while. All right? <laughs> but I love mafia movies. And there's a great one in the 1980s. It's called The Untouchables. And, and in this movie, Sean Connery and Kevin Costner, they're about to break into Al Capone's safe house. And Sean Connery says, man, we're about to start, start a, a hornet's nest here. Here's what's going to happen. You need to understand that, that we're going to do something. They're going to get back, and we'll pull a knife out on them. They'll pull a gun out on us. They'll, we, we'll send one of theirs to the hospital. They'll send one of ours to the morgue. That's kind of how the world operates when it comes to vengeance. Tit for tat, we keep up the ante, and that's exactly how some of us roll. Others of us, we too cool for school. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to let you see that, that you got me. So we don't go the vengeance route. Others of us go the apathy route. We shrug our shoulders. And we say, well, it wasn't a big deal. Oh, forget about it. Is that mercy? No, mercy walks in truth. 
Mercy doesn't act like nothing happened. Mercy has the conversation. Mercy says, in order for me to deal with this, I have to understand what this is. So Jesus doesn't call us to vengeance. He doesn't call us to apathy. By the way, I want you to understand, you can be merciful and pursue justice at the same time. Because the God we serve is both merciful and just. So you can be merciful and take them to court. What does it mean to show mercy? Look at it with me. Mercy simply means an attitude and action of kindness towards the undeserving. It is an attitude and an action of kindness towards the undeserving. You wrong me, now you are in my debt. You owe me. Now I'm, 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 I'm going to treat you not with what you deserve, but I'm going to do something crazy irrational. I ain't going to keep score. I'm going to hit reset on the scoreboard. It is, it is an attitude and an action. In fact, the New Testament, as Pastor Vance has taught us over the years, it is written in Greek, and the Greek word for mercy, it's the same word that shows up in Matthew chapter 9. A couple chapters later, it says of Jesus that he looks out on the crowds, and it says, in seeing the multitude, seeing the crowds, he felt, he felt, he felt compassion. So that mercy, we'll see in a little bit, it's not just in my hands, it's in my heart. I am, um, you know, sometimes when, a, when an individual has tightness in their chest, maybe some of you have experienced that. And you really want to know what's going on in your chest and you go to the doctor the doctor will put you on some cardio machine and will push you to your limits. Because the doctor understands that sometimes in order to really ascertain what's going on inside you, I have to take you through what they call a stress test. Several years ago, I memorized the, the Beatitudes and I just... I just pray them about once a week, and I'll, I'll never forget. I'm, I'm just kind of praying through them, and God, help me to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and just kind of walking through that. Then, then, then I get to mercy, and it dawns on me as I'm praying, you know, Lord, help me to be merciful. Well, how does that happen? Unless God puts me through a stress test. You never know if you have a merciful heart when people are treating you well. The only way you know if mercy is in here is when someone wrongs you. So be careful what you pray. Because God's in distress tests. Blessed are the merciful. 
I want to give you a lot of vitamin A in this message. I'm going to give you a lot of application. I understand that mercy is a work of God. These beatitudes, on the one hand, they're not something that we just white-knuckle our way through. God is doing them. But he doesn't put us in a comatose state. There's a part in which we play. So how can I cultivate this, this plant of mercy in my life? I want to give you three things. When we talk about stirring up mercy, I, I, I think it begins by us seeing our story. If you're here today and you don't know Christ is Lord and Savior, I want to speak to you, and I, I want to just speak, of, speak to everybody. The natural plot line to all of our stories is exactly the same in the narrative of God. All of us, for example, we were created in what's called the Imago Dei, the image of God. And because of that, we were created for a purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, Greek word poema, from which we get the English word poem from. God looks at us with delight. The Bible says that God sings over us, that God sees us as his creation, that again, we're created on purpose and for a purpose. Your mom and daddy may not have planned on you being here. And one of the ways you know that is if your closest sibling is a decade older than you, you was a surprise. <laughs> but there are no surprises in the eyes of God. Created on purpose and for a purpose. But here's the problem. We came into this world broken by sin. David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was born in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I came into this world colored by sin. All of me colored by sin. One of my pastor friends says, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. <laughs> you don't have to teach kids how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish. It's how we're wired. And our sins, our rebellion, wound the heart of God. It puts us in debt with him. And yet God, in an insane act of mercy, Romans 5, 8 says that, that God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My favorite word in Romans 5, 8 isn't God, isn't demonstrated, isn't loved. It's the word while. That God saw me as is, accepts me as is, loves me as is, saves me as is, and yet by his grace never leaves me as is. I'm not saved by my consecutive quiet time streak. I'm not saved by what church I go to. I'm not saved by, by baptism or a giving record. I am saved by the mercy of God. He saw you and I as a wretch. And he says, I'm going to forgive the debt. That is our story. And so to be saved by the mercy of God and to withhold mercy from our siblings who have been made in the image of God is a high form of spiritual treason. 
So I want to encourage you. This week, maybe you want to just sit in Matthew chapter 18. It's a great little story in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Jesus is really trying to, to help us visualize this concept. In Matthew 18, he tells a story of an individual who had racked up a debt, 10,000 talents he owed this king. That's billions of dollars. One commentator, I love it. He said, what this man owed this king is like America's debt to China. He had no hope of paying it. And I love what he says. Please be patient with me. I will repay you. Brother, that's a lot of patience. And the king, in an insane act, shows him mercy and simply forgives him. Forgives him America's debt. What does this joker do? This joker gets out of jail and finds someone who owes him to what amounts to be a gallon of gas. A few denarii and starts choking him, pay me what you owe. The king hears about it and is like, are you kidding me? I just forgave you billions of dollars and you're holding a grudge over what amounts to be a few dollars? Throw him back in jail. And the message is, Brian, every time you hold a grudge, every time you don't release people, you put yourself in your own prison called unforgiveness. Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, let me remind you of your story. Will you look at what he says with me? Writing to the Corinthians, he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this. And such were some of you. Paul says, I, I don't want you staring at the rearview mirror of your life. There's a reason why the rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield. If you stare at it, you'll wreck your car. You won't get to the destination God has for you. But you should glance at it from time to time because it gives you perspective. Glance at what God has saved you from. Glance at his mercy in your life. And when you catch a whiff of his mercy in your life, when you remember your own story. Okay, Brian, I, I get it, but you don't really understand. Um, my mother-in-law is a trip. I'm already fasting because six weeks from now it's Thanksgiving and I'm getting prayed up. <laughs> Brian, some of you are saying, you really don't understand my situation. You really don't understand what this person has done to me. It begins by seeing our own story. But let me also encourage you, I found it to be helpful in helping to stir up mercy in my own soul by seeing other people's story. 
Imagine with me, if you will, you're just driving down the street and you get to an intersection and maybe there's two homeless people and one homeless person is just kind of, um, uh, he's got a tin cup and he's just kind of extending it, asking for money. But there's another homeless person. This person actually has a cardboard sign that says, Vietnam vet, was disabled in the war, cannot work a job, homeless. Which person are you more likely to show mercy and compassion to? Probably the one in whose story you know. Isn't this John 4? John 4, here is Jesus, sits with a woman at a well. A Jewish man would never sit with a Samaritan woman in broad daylight. It's an insane act of mercy. Why? Jesus knows her story. He actually tells her, yet yet you've been with five men, and the man you're with now that makes six is not your husband. Now she's about to meet the seventh man, the man of completion, who will bring fulfillment to her life, which will radically change her life. But Jesus says, let me just tell you something. I know your story. In first century Judaism, see, this woman gets a bad rap. She wasn't divorcing these men. Women couldn't divorce a man back then. These men were messing over her. And while everyone else was avoiding her, Jesus sits with her. Why? Because Jesus understands her story. He sees her story. See, it's real, real easy to label people. But I want to encourage you. I'm not excusing sin. Let's call sin what it is. It's sin, and it needs to be dealt with. But what helps me show compassion is when I actually get to know the story beneath the sin. Maybe that person gossips because... That's the only way they feel good about themselves. So I don't feel good about myself, so the only way I can feel good about myself is to give you the scoop on something. So the gossip's not really about the gossip, it's it's me trying to feel good about myself. Or or maybe the promiscuity isn't about the promiscuity. Maybe, Maybe there was some sexual abuse there years ago. That's the only way now that I'm, I'm kind of expressing that. I'm kind of showing that. Or, or maybe the anger isn't ultimately about the anger. It's about undealt with hurt from a father who wounded me deeply. And I don't know how to cope with that. See, we're real quick to label people and to take a photo of them on their worst days and leave them there when we don't understand people are not photos, they're movies, they're works in progress, there's a a narrative there. When I see the story, when I really come to terms with that, I'm better positioned to extend mercy. How do I cultivate mercy in my own life? I I see my own story. I'm messed up. 
But morning by morning, Jeremiah says, new mercies I see. How do I cultivate mercy? I, I, I need to get to know other people's stories. Thirdly and finally, I've, I've got to understand God's story. The text doesn't say, blessed are those who do merciful things. The text says, blessed are the merciful. See, he's not, he's not getting to our function. He's dealing with our essence. He's dealing with our disposition. He's dealing with who we are. And that's what makes Christianity frustrating. Because the difference between Christianity and religion, religion is I try to do it. I try to perform. I try to white knuckle my way into it. Christianity is all about a relationship. I cannot manufacture the kind of mercy that brings God glory independent of God. I need him. That's why, that's why Exodus, around about chapters 32, 33, 34, it's a beautiful scene. Here's God, he's frustrated with the people of Israel, and he's, he tells Moses, you know what, Moses, you know, they've been down there partying with this golden calf, I'm done, but I made a promise to you, y'all go to the promised land, I ain't going with you. And Moses is like begging God and interceding, and finally God, in an insane act of mercy, is like, okay, I'll go. And then Moses, you would think, okay, Moses, stop right there, Moses ain't done. He says, one more thing, God, show me your glory. You know, you know what Moses is saying? God, show me the fullness of who you are. <laughs> and I love it. God's like, have you been drinking? <laughs> like no one can see me and live. So here's what I'll do, Moses. I I'll, I I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by you. But I'm not going to give you the full-on selfie. I'm going to let you see my exhaust. I, I'm, I'm just going to give you a snapshot into who I am. It's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. And so here's Moses in the cleft of a rock. He's 90-something years of age. God passes by him. And when God passes by, what does Moses see? Look at it with me. As God walks by, it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, watch it now, hear it, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Hear it, this is a statement, not just a function, it is a statement of character. It is who God is, and a part of who God is, look at it, he's merciful, God says, that's who I am. In fact, the thing that I love about this text is, if you just read through the Old Testament, this, this exact description of God is used at least seven times in the Old Testament. It's like God tells the writers, put it on repeat. It's who I am. I'm merciful. I'm merciful. I'm merciful. I'm merciful. I have more mercy than you have mess. You cannot outsend my mercy. In accounting terms, at no point does my mercy ever come back insufficient funds. It's who I am. It's who I am. 
It's who I am. And when I get in relationship with God, God hooks up his character to my life through the jumper cables of the Holy Spirit and pumps his character into my life. So Ethan and I on the plane ride out here today, many of you have been on airplanes. You know how this goes. Flight attendant goes through the safety protocols and says, look, you know, if the oxygen masks come out and you've, you've got a little one with you on your lap, don't put it on them first. Put it on yourself first. Take care of yourself. Why? You cannot give to others what you don't possess yourself. So the place to start, see, I don't want you leaving this message saying, I've got to be more merciful. i got to be, no, what you've got to do is you've got to abide, you've got to abide, you've got to abide, you've got to abide. Because when you abide in Christ, then his character gets pumped into you. What does this look like, practically speaking, as we end? Let me give you four things. When I really incarnate Matthew 5, 7 in my life, one, there's eternal security. I'm not saved by my moral strivings. <laughs> I'm not, this, is, this is the difference between Christianity and other world religions. I'm saved by God's mercy and grace. My pastor, he did dinner once with Prince. I'm talking his purpleness. <laughs> just, just him and Prince. And I said the next day, I called my pastor first thing, oh my gosh, what did you talk about? He says, you won't believe it, we talked about the Lord. Really? He's like, yeah. He says, Prince is a Jehovah's Witness. I said, get out of here. Like, are, like a real one? Like, like he's knocking on doors at seven something in the morning on Saturdays? <laughs> he goes, yes, in the Hollywood Hills. Can you imagine that, by the way? Prince just knocks on your door. My pastor says, I said to Prince, why are you, why are you knocking on doors? Why, why are you doing this? He goes, I'm just trying to get into heaven. I just want to be one of the 144,000. My pastor said to him, look, you don't have to knock on doors to get into heaven. There's a man, his name is Jesus, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we come in by mercy. And we're kept in by mercy. And when I really let that saturate my soul, that when God saved me, he knew everything I'd ever do, will do, and have ever done to break his heart. And yet by his mercy, he still says, I want you. That's eternal security. But second, it's emboldened confidence. Some of you are here and, man, you'll, you'll sin and hear me, we should feel conviction. It's the sign of the Spirit inside of us. We should feel contrition. That's Psalm 51. There should be this thing in us in which we, we, we feel the weight of it, but that's different than shame. Some of you all are marinating in the crock pot of shame. That's not of God. 
The writer of Hebrews says that, that when we sin, we can come, I love it, boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because it's covered by the mercy of God. Thirdly, there's not just eternal security, there's not just emboldened confidence, but, but thirdly, when I show mercy, it's actually, when I show mercy, it's actually an indicator light of salvation. Hear me, I don't show mercy to get saved, but one of the ways I know I'm saved is I show mercy. See, just like we would say a greedy Christian is an oxymoron, and just like we would say a racist Christian is an oxymoron, so likewise, we would say an unmerciful Christian or a Christian who holds grudges is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. One of the ways I know that I've received the mercy of God is that mercy, it's not a swamp, it's not a reservoir, it's a river, it's a, it's a bull, it passes through me to others. Finally, Mercy not just gives me eternal security and boldened confidence when I show it. It's not just evidence of salvation, but mercy enriches relationships. Show me two Christians who've been walking together in relationship and all of a sudden they're not speaking. And most of the times I'll show you somebody who just didn't show mercy. Your marriage, your friendship, your relationship, it's a venture between two very flawed people. And when you get into friendship with me, you're gonna see my humanity and I'm gonna let you down and I'm gonna disappoint you and you're gonna let me down and you're gonna disappoint me. Therefore, if I want a relationship, a marriage, a friendship that doesn't just survive but thrives over the long haul, I better get in the habit of heaping generous portions of mercy on each other's plates. So as we close, maybe, maybe that wall your marriage has hit Maybe your breakthrough is showing mercy. Maybe God is saying to those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, maybe we should send that text message, send that email, make that phone call, and schedule a socially distanced cup of coffee. just hit reset on the scoreboard and just extend mercy because haven't we received the mercy of God that mercy is meant to flow through us others of you are taking part this weekend and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ the good news is God has created you for relationship with him the good news is God knows everything about you. And he says, I still want you. I want a relationship with you. There's nothing we could ever do to make God turn his back on us. 
His mercy is waiting for us. What must you do to be saved? It's simply the recognition that that you, like me, like all of us, have failed God. Ephesians 2 says we were by nature children of wrath. If I was preaching that text back in the 90s, Pastor Vance, I'd call it naughty by nature. Oh, y'all got that. I love it. I love it. Some of you are saying, wait a minute, I thought God loved me, but you're saying he's angry with me? Yeah, actually his anger is a sign of his love. Love and anger can coexist. We parents understand that when it comes to our kids, don't we? Can't no one tick us off like them little precious tax (laughs) write-offs. If you just cry out to God, his mercy awaits. His mercy awaits.